Hi, my name is Theo, and you are listening to Between Two Trains. We bring you the best and brightest entrepreneurs in the North DeKalb area on the 1st and 15th of every month. Today, your co-hosts are Van Pappas and Eric Most. And now, Between Two Trains. Welcome to Between Two Trains, a monthly podcast where we come to you on the 1st and the 15th of every month. My name is Van Pappas. I'm your friendly financial planner. And I'm Eric Most, your better business banker. Eric, welcome back. Uh, so hopefully uh, the when we air this show, uh, we can actually go out to restaurants uh, and uh, go back to getting haircuts. Um, but uh, until then, we're going to have a chat with a gentleman that I actually met in a haircut barbershop here in Chambly. His name is Peter Vanderzee. And um, he is the owner of Lifespan Technologies. Peter, welcome to the show. Well, thank you, Van. Great to be with you. So tell us, Peter, exactly what Lifespan Technologies does. Well, first and foremost, we are not a healthcare company. I know that's on everybody's mind these days. Uh, But we actually are doctors for bridges. Big bridges, highway bridges. I like bridges, that. Railroad Doctors bridges. for bridges. That's awesome. Yeah. We, um, we get called in to do our work when the uh, standard method of determining bridge condition is not good enough and the owner uh, has some inkling that uh, the bridge may be in better condition than what visual inspection showed. And uh, then we go to work, and half the time, or a little more than half, we determine that the bridge is actually in better to much better condition, which saves the local owner or the state owner a lot of money. And we're talking about millions of dollars. So most of your customers are going to be either the state itself or a local municipality? Is that who the majority of your customers are? That is correct. Mostly state DOTs, but we can involve with uh, bridge authorities, toll authorities, and uh, even the railroads. Interesting. And so, what kind of, go what ahead. Kind of territory, what kind of territory do you cover? U.S. wide. Oh, We've wow. done work from Massachusetts to Michigan to uh, California, Colorado, Tennessee, everywhere. Is this is this a business that requires uh, a heavy capital outlay for equipment, or can any uh, engineer that has knowledge on bridges get into this game? Well, it doesn't require a heavy load of capital. Obviously, you've got to have some, but really surprisingly little. Um, the, the key is that you have to develop relationships with the owners of the bridges, and that, of course, means the state DOTs in particular, um, sometimes local municipalities, um, railroads, uh, transit agencies, and so forth. Um, I've been around the country many, many times, been to almost every major city at least two or three times around the country, visiting with people, developing relationships, explaining what we do, and then um, when their need arises, they contact us. Or, or other people. There are other people in this business. Uh, and uh, we either put in a proposal to do work or they hire us on a sole source basis. So 
I've been to a lot of conferences where economists have talked about how infrastructure in this country is crumbling. Is that really accurate or is that just a political line? I can assure you that is a political line. Um, Having been in this business for 17 years now, um, we find after we've done our magic uh, that, again, the structures we work on, and it, it mostly bridges but we've done a store for a, a, a large retailer. Uh, we've done a tunnel for a, for a, a state DOT. Um, that the infrastructure is in better structural condition than they presume based on visual inspection. That doesn't mean it's bright and shiny and looks brand new, but it's in good structural condition, meaning that it's safe and it can be used for its intended purpose. So when I go how over... Do you, how do you- Go ahead, Eric. Yeah. How do you go about doing that? Well, first and foremost, um, I'm going to try to try to explain that answer in non-engineering terms because, you know, engineers typically go off into the weeds and and, and like to use fancy words that a lot of folks, maybe your listeners, wouldn't understand, but. There yeah, are some just, just um, tell me engineering. What time it is. I don't need, just tell me what time it is. I don't need to know how to build a clock. <laughs> okay. I'll try to keep this simple. There are engineering properties that every material has, and we use sensors on the bridge to determine what those properties are, especially when the bridge has what we call a load on it, which would be uh, cars, trucks, or a combination of cars and trucks. And based on the response of the bridge, to that load that's put on there, we can determine whether the bridge is healthy or uh, just has a cold or maybe really sick and needs uh, needs to be replaced. So uh, it's a very interesting technology. It's heavily dependent on sensors. And uh, we use um, uh, the web, we have a web-based application so that uh, the owner could literally sit in his office with a desktop or laptop computer and watch the bridge react in real time. Wow. Wow. So, I mean, there's a range of materials, obviously, you know, if you're in California along fault lines, I assume the engineering, you know, the design that goes into these bridges, you know, varies based on, you know, the volume of traffic, you know, the weight, you know, that's allowed. I mean, that's a, this is a huge scope of what you're kind of certifying or analyzing. Is that how you approach it? Yeah, there's no, there's no doubt about it. I mean, there, uh, you know, I, I used the term earlier, uh, bridge doctors. Um, uh, we see bridges as patients. So uh, just like a medical doctor would do, he's in his office and, and you, the patient, come in, the doctor would say you present with certain symptoms. Uh, so the doctor will interrogate you, talk about your history, use some rudimentary uh, diagnostic tools like a blood pressure cuff, and then start what amounts to a diagnostic pathway. One thing leads to another, leads to another. And usually, as the testing continues, it gets more expensive to do the tests. For example, an MRI is a lot more expensive than a blood pressure cuff. Mm-hmm. Well, visual inspection today of bridges is a blood pressure cuff. Simple, fast, but you know, somewhat subjective, okay? It tells you a little bit, but it doesn't tell you very much. 
we're the MRIs of the business. When the when the owner says, you know what, I'm really really uneasy about the condition of this bridge, we really need to have a much better understanding of how it reacts to the loads that we're uh, applying to it. And when we get done, uh, often it becomes very clear that the bridge is in better condition than they had originally believed. Have you done any famous bridges that uh, you would say, oh, yeah, we we took a look and monitored, I don't know, the Golden Gate Bridge? Has there been the Golden any, Gate Bridge. Or any famous <laughs> bridge that you might have done? Yeah. The, the, it's interesting you should say that because the Golden Gate Bridge is the best maintained bridge in the United States. They are always painting it. It's 100% of the time being painted, and it's in excellent condition. So there's really no need for what we do on that bridge. But there's a brand-new bridge in New York City um, called the Gothels Bridge. It was completely rebuilt, and we put the um, we designed the uh, structural monitoring system for that bridge, uh, so it's being watched by the the owner, the New York New Jersey Port Authority, on a consistent basis to uh, make sure the bridge is performing properly. Now, just like a doctor, are there kind of annual physicals or routine maintenance that is standard for bridges? Oh yes, very good question, Eric. Um, the Federal Highway Administration has been requiring all bridge owners to have biennial, every two years, inspections, physical, visual inspections of bridges across the United States. There are about 620,000 bridges in the United States. So every two years, they get a, a physical inspection. But, and, and this is the most important point of all, the Federal Highway Administration 20 years ago studied that process. It had been used for the better part of 30 years, and then they, they, they said to themselves, how accurate can visual inspection really be? They brought in 50 bridge inspectors from around the country. They had them look at three bridges in the Washington, D.C. area, and they tallied up the results and did some statistical analysis. And what they concluded was that visual inspection was very subjective and, and not reliable enough to optimize spending. Okay, very, very important study was published in 2000, uh, the year 2000. Um, and that has led to too many of the bridges that are in the United States being classified as structurally deficient. And if you'll go back to what I said earlier, that once we get involved, we find out at least half the time that they're not nearly as bad as visual inspection would indicate. So we've overstated the number of bad bridges in this country, which then gets the politicians all riled up, which then gets the politicians that want to spend trillions of dollars on infrastructure. And the poor taxpayer sits here and doesn't know any better, really, and, and just has to take the medicine. So it, it, it's a very interesting position to be in. There's a lot of nuances to this business, but that's the bottom line is that bridges in this country are in better condition than visual inspection indicates. Hey, Van, I, I like how Peter 
references bridge owners. Maybe you and I can build a few bridges I, and I put think, a coal booth on it. Yeah, I, th- I think uh, we need to build a bridge here in Chambly, and we'll put it uh, over the Bucks house from your house to my house. <laughs> <laughs> no, but Peter, uh, let me ask you something, because I want to move in a second to ask you about local stuff. But just so I understand what is, you know, I mean, I drive over bridges all the time. Uh, you know, what's like the normal lifespan of a bridge today? Uh, I would say over the last 50 years, bridges have been designed to last about 50 years. That's okay. been the standard that the engineering community uses. Um, the average age of bridges, highway bridges in this country now is probably around 45 years. So a lot of people go, oh, you know, this is terrible. We're going to have to replace all these bridges. No, the answer is no. I mean, you look at the Brooklyn Bridge, it was opened, I think, in 1872, something like that. Um, no, you don't. But you do have to make sure that the bridge is in good condition for the safety of the people who are using it. Today's bridge designs, because of the uh, concern that many people have with regard to safety and longevity of the infrastructure, are being designed for 100 years. Let's take a local example. Let's take a local example. So Spaghetti Junction, that's what, about mm-hmm. 30 or 40 years old now. So mm-hmm. are you mm-hmm. saying that that's designed in a way where it will last another 40, 50 years, or are they going to have to do something to Spaghetti Junction in a decade or so? No, I I think Spaghetti Junction in particular, uh, given it was designed 30 to 40 years ago, is was probably done with a design that was considered adequate for 50 years. So, but that doesn't mean it needs to be replaced at 50 years. What it need, what it really means is it needs to be, um, inspected, which is always a good thing. I'm not against visual inspection, but if they find things that are concerning, that's when they need to call in companies like ours to give them, if you will, an MRI, and so we can really understand the condition of the structure. That bridge may last easily another 20 or 30 years. However, those bridges, I should say, in Spaghetti Junction, however, what you're going to find and what we already know from GDOT's plans of, of, of continued work around the perimeter, that that's, that structure is going to be what's called functionally obsolete. It's too narrow. It can't handle the traffic volumes. So eventually it'll have to be replaced because of that, more so than the structural deficiency. Since you mentioned GDOT, talk a little bit about your experience with them. I'm assuming they're someone you've uh, gotten contracts for here for monitoring bridges in the state of Georgia. Um, you know, what, what's that like? What, what is GDOT like? I'll use one word to answer that and I'll, I'll call it sort of torture. Um, a number of years ago, we started to do some work with GDOT and um, it was successful. Uh, in one particular case, we we monitored two bridges in southwest Georgia near a uh, pulp plant that uh, those bridges were going to be load posted uh, or restricted in terms of their load. And, 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 and you, if you see uh, uh, logging trucks running around in southwest Georgia, they're, they're typically overloaded in terms of weight. 
And the logging industry complained. They said, you can't possibly do that. It'll kill us. It'll kill our business. So GDOT hired us to um, to do the uh, so-called MRI on those bridges, and we found out the bridges were in really good condition. So they avoided having to put any restrictive load postings on them. Um, also, we did a project for them in Roswell. Roswell had a bridge that was load restricted, and they couldn't even bring school buses over it. Um, again, visual inspection looked at, oh, it's terrible. You know, we have to reduce the weight and on and on and on. Well, you know, we monitored it for a year. They did a load uh, test on the bridge, and we found out the bridge was perfectly ca capable of handling school buses and even more than that, emergency vehicles. Um, but uh, after all these successes with GDOT, uh, you know, I went down there and tried to pitch uh, a statewide program to uh, eliminate as many uh, load-restricted bridges as possible around the state. And there's probably over six or seven hundred of them now. Uh, the Georgia Municipal Association was completely behind this. They were very happy to do this. But Georgia DOT, um, in their infinite wisdom, said, no, we don't want to do that kind of program. So that's where we are with Georgia DOT. Well, Peter, it's kind of interesting because, you know, it sounds like a lot of your analysis, you've mentioned a couple times on this podcast, you know, the analysis comes back that the bridge is in good condition. And, and while a visual inspection may point towards, you know, a major investment and, in, you know, reconstruction of the bridge or, or some type of huge capital outlay to do that, your MRI, while more expensive than a visual observation, I'm sure, but less expensive than a complete overhaul or reconstruction of the bridge, it seems like it's a very prudent thing for, for the state and local governments to do, the bridge owners to, to conduct. Why don't they do this as a normal course of business? Eric, if you can find a way to get an answer to that question, I may wind up paying you $50,000. How's that sound? Is that a good incentive? Uh, well, I have asked I have asked that question over and over and over again because I think just like you stated that all of these state DOTs should be doing a long-term and I say long-term I mean at least 10 years program to reduce the number of bridges that they actually have to replace because replacing bridges is not only disruptive to the local economy but it's very expensive I mean, you can't. You can build a little tiny bridge today for half a million dollars. When I say tiny, I mean it may be seventy-five feet long. But you start building a bridge that's hundreds of feet long, you're talking tens of millions of dollars. And in some cases, some of the largest bridges in the country are billion dollars or more. So, you know, there's a lot of money on the table, so to speak. And I've 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 told many many commissioners of DOTs across the country, consider building a long-term program where you can use this technology exactly where it needs to be used, get the information you need, and if I'm right, which I feel very strongly about, if I'm right, half of the bridges that you think are bad and need to be replaced will probably have anywhere from 10 to 20 more uh, safe years to, to be in existence save the taxpayers millions of dollars, and everybody goes home happy. But because this is not a routine thing for them, 
It's not in any code that they have to follow. It's not been a directive of the Federal Highway Administration. They will not do it. Well, it seems to me, going with the medical analogy we've been making, that prognosis without diagnosis is malpractice. So, I, you know, I don't understand. Uh, <laughs> I, don't, I don't know if I want to go quite that far, but in a private conversation, I might agree with you. Um, <laughs> you know, it's, it's, it's malpractice against the taxpayer is really what it is. Uh, right. You right. know, that's uh, yeah, it's it, you know when when you have money rolling into a DOT, and of course they always scream for more money. I understand that. That's that's their business, and the more they have, the easier their job becomes. Uh, there's more things they can do, and everything will eventually be bright and shiny, and the politicians can go cut ribbons, and I did this for you, and on and on and on. And the poor taxpayer sits there going, I can't believe I keep paying and paying and paying. You know what am I getting out of this? Right. So yeah. I think that the, the key objective for any DOT or local owner ought to be primary the taxpayer. How can I make the taxpayer win? And the way you make the taxpayer win is when you think you have a bad asset. And it, it really doesn't matter whether it's a building or a bridge or a monument or a stadium or whatever it might be. If you use the right technology to get a pinpoint understanding of its condition, you will make a much better decision about repair, replacement, or in many cases, there's no reason to do anything. Stop the project, put the money back in the bank, and let's use it for other things. So, Peter, do we need to worry about the tunnels that MARTA uses for the subways? You, you mentioned earlier about you inspect tunnels, too. Is that a concern? No, MARTA has the same standards for inspection and condition assessment that um, a state DOT might have. They're out there. They have a force of people that actually do this work uh, on a periodic basis. So, uh, uh, you know, again, what you wind up having is a very subjective inspection and a very conservative inspection. Um, They tend to downrate whether it's a tunnel, whether it's a beam on an overpass or whatever it might be. Um, So you can be sure that they're being overly conservative. That doesn't mean everything's perfect, but uh, MARTA wanted to to use us, uh, I think, at least twice over the last 15 years, approached us and uh, talked to us. And, uh, you know, they wound up wanting to have uh, our services for about $1.95, and, you know, I just looked at him and I said, I mean, you got to be kidding me. I can't stay in business when I give stuff away. So yeah. uh, we never wound up doing any work for MARTA. Do they, on, on the topic of, you know, I mean, I would assume that these services, do they submit an RFP and you've got to compete to be awarded the, the bid to do the, the diagnosis on a bridge or a tunnel? Sometimes that's true. Uh, but most times for us, it's not. We've done probably 90 plus percent of our work on a sole source basis where the owner, uh, for, what re- for whatever reason, was very comfortable with us, with our approach to the problem um, and, and how we were going to deliver the information. And they just hired us on a sole source basis. 
Well, we're coming up to our break where we need to hear from our sponsors. So we're going to uh, to take a break here. And when we come back from the break, we're going to play our ever fun game. Can you ace it and see how well Peter does at answering some questions that might not necessarily be about bridges. So stay tuned for that. If you recently got divorced, you may be wondering how to pick up all of the financial pieces. Is it time to make a new budget, new goals, and get a new game plan with your investments? What about the best way to save money on your taxes? Take control of your money future. Go to OxygenFinancial.net to schedule a complimentary meeting today. Go to OxygenFinancial.net to get started right now. Securities offered through Kestra Investment Services, member FINRA, SIPC. Advisory services offered through Kestra Advisory Services, an affiliate of Kestra Investment Services. Oxygen is not affiliated with Kestra. Welcome back to Between Two Trains. Uh, my name is Van Pappas, and we have with us today Peter Vanderzee, who is from Lifespan Technologies, and he is about to play our Can You Ace It game, which is sponsored by the Shambly Ace Hardware. Um, what a great business that has uh, really stepped up during this pandemic event, uh, staying open, following the rules, making sure uh, everyone is safe and still able to get the things they need. Go see Brian and Stacy over at the Ace Hardware. So Eric, let's take it away and see if Peter can answer these questions. All right, Peter, we've got three questions for you, multiple guests. And um, I will read you the questions and you'll, you'll respond. So here we go. All right, question number one, which of these skyscrapers is the tallest in Atlanta? The Century Center Marriott, uh, answer B, Bank of America Plaza, or C, the King and Queen buildings in Sandy Springs? I'll go with the Bank of America Plaza. Ding, 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 ding. You are correct, Peter. Good answer. The Bank of America uh, Plaza is actually the 17th tallest building in the United States. It's obviously the tallest in Georgia um, and the tallest in the southern United States. And here's an interesting fact for you, is the tallest building in any U.S. state capital. So, uh, yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, if you think about where the capitals are, most capitals are not in a big major city like Atlanta, you know, I mean, in New York, it's not New York city. It's, it's Albany. So tallest tallest building in the U S state. Yeah. No, Tallahassee. Yeah. There's another example. You're not going to have a lot of skyscrapers in Tallahassee. All right. So Peter's one for one. All right. Question number two, which of these are true about the Fox theater? Either a, The Fox Theater is one of the earliest air-conditioned buildings in the country, even preceding the White House. B, it still houses its original steam boilers. Or C, they serve more than four and a half tons of popcorn each year. I'm going to go with number two, B, the answer with the steam boilers. Ding, 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 ding. You are correct. And actually, all three answers are correct. It, ah. it, it was air conditioned before the White House. So that shows you, uh, you know, a little bit about the Fox Theater. So if that's not Southern hospitality, I don't know what is, Van. That's right. That's <laughs> right. We got to have air conditioning down here. All right. So Peter is now two for two. All right. On a roll. Can he make it a clean sweep? Acing it so far. All right. 
Question number three, the oldest building in Atlanta is either A, the Fulton County Jail, B, the Smith House in Buckhead, or C, the Georgia State Capitol Building? Ooh, I don't know. Mm. That's a tough one. I'm going with A, the jail. Oh, wah, wah, wah. You're not collecting $200 so you can oh, get in jail. No, sorry. It's actually the Smith House in Buckhead. The Smith House was built in 1840. Some people would think it's the state capitol, but the state capitol wasn't rebuilt until 1884 after Sherman burnt it down. So where is the Smith House in Buckhead? I don't even know. It, it is. It used to be. It was moved, actually. And so they moved it to behind the Atlanta History Center there on West Paces Ferry. Okay. That is the oldest. This is uh, some Atlanta trivia here, Ben. I like it. That's right. That's right. Oldest building, 1840. So pretty much everything else was burnt by Sherman. So that's that's one of the only houses that, that wasn't burnt back then. Okay. All right. So, Peter, you did well. You got two out of three. Sorry we don't have a gift card, but if you go into Ace Hardware and meet, and I know you go to Elliot's Barber right next door, so next time you're getting your hair cut, walk in, introduce yourself, say you are on uh, Between Two Trains, ask for Brian Fisk, the owner, and say that you won the Can You Ace It game, and I'm sure he will take care of you in some way. That's great because I do shop there and I know Brian and it's a great store and with wonderful service. Yes, yes. It uh, really is. All right. So, you know, we're we're pretty close to the end of our podcast, but, you know, I, I would not, I'd be remiss if I didn't ask the most pressing question of the North DeKalb citizens, which is, are we okay on the Claremont Bridge? Uh, um, interestingly enough, I go over that bridge periodically, uh, and I have actually been under that bridge when I've walked, uh, under that with, where there's a park, uh, uh, trailway sure. under that. Yeah. The rail trail's um, back there. Right. Um, I, I, I think that bridge is probably good for another 20 to 30 years. So, um, you know, that's just a quick quick assessment by me, but if it ever looked like it had problems, and the problems would show up on that bridge probably because it's concrete with cracks. If the inspectors looked around and saw a lot of cracking on it, the concrete was cracked, then it might be time for them to call us and see if we can help diagnose what the problem is. But I think it's plenty safe. There's a business that operates underneath that bridge. Does that give you any concern when you see uh, things that are other than just nature that are being done under the bridges, whether it's, you know, parking or businesses or homeless people that burn up, uh, 85. Well, yeah, that was a horrible incident, but yeah, I mean, structurally, if the bridge is sound, there's never going to be a problem. But again, uh, they didn't, the Minnesota DOT didn't think they had a problem either uh, when I-35 collapsed. Um, you might find this interesting, but I was on the phone with the chief engineer of Minnesota DOT about two weeks before that collapse occurred. And I said, you know, I'd like to come up to Minneapolis and talk to your team and tell tell them about what we do. And uh, his response was, well, we don't need your technology in uh, Minnesota. 
Wow. And two weeks later, I sat in front of my television like everybody else did that night and watched the aftermath of all those people who were killed and injured. And it was horrible. And, you know, they knew that bridge was sick. And I use that term because of the medical uh, analogy. They knew that bridge was sick. Uh, but there were a number of different things that came into play that particular day that drove it over the line and caused its failure. Uh, it was a, it didn't have to happen. And and had had the Minnesota DOT used the technology that we have or other people in our business can can deliver, I don't think that incident would have happened. Wow. Well, well, let me. I know. I know we're wrapping up, but but let me just ask this. Because I just found it fascinating when in Atlanta, you have combustible materials that were stored under there, and then, you know, it, it got ignited. I know a lot of people, without knowing the engineering and the physics behind it, just were kind of surprised that concrete, you know, would, would you know, be impacted the way it was. Um, what's your kind of analysis and comment on that? I know there's a lot of conspiracy theories out there, too. Well, I, I, there, there's really no need for conspiracy theories. I mean, in terms of of what what um, the heat will do to the concrete, it it, it expands the concrete and it expands. There's, there's steel reinforcement inside the concrete. It's called rebar, and when that heats up, it expands, and you know that's going to blow out the concrete. So, I mean, there's just no way for that bridge to uh, to stand up and. We saw the same thing on 9/11 when the when those airplanes hit the, the World Trade Center. Um, the steel gets too hot, and it actually starts to melt. So uh, you know, steel is not meant to melt when it's in place to hold something up. So um, yeah. that's what happens. I'm sure we could talk uh, a lot more about that and the engineering physics of it, but um, we are out of time. And Peter, I really appreciate you coming on the show. This has been very informative. I will tell you, I feel a lot easier about driving over the, the bridges and byways of the Atlanta area and um, and honestly look forward to seeing what uh, finally comes of the construction there at 400 and 285. It looks like that's a, a massive bridge project as well. So, Indeed. Yeah. Indeed. Well, it's been great being with you, Van and Eric. Uh, glad to do it anytime. Thanks, and we will see everyone in two weeks for another great guest on Between Two Trains.